We're in this series called uh, When Good Relationships Go Bad. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about conflict and relationships. And then last Sunday, Brian McStay talked about control, issues of control uh, that, that uh, affect personal relationships and how to anticipate those and some strategies for dealing with those. This morning and next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness, this difficult subject that's a very emotive subject and I know brings up a lot of stuff that you'd probably rather not think about and rather not talk about. Uh, last weekend, amidst all the celebration that was going on around the opening of the Rugby World Cup, on the other side of the world, there was a much more uh, somber occasion that was going on, the commemoration of the, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Uh, ten years on, and you have a nation there still grappling and wrestling with how do we respond to people that have perpetrated this, this atrocity against us, people that they didn't know personally but have committed this hideous offence. And uh, there's a phrase that's been used over the last 10 years, really since 9-11, never forget. And then interestingly, you see around the anniversary uh, of 9-11, another phrase added on. So now you have T-shirts and mugs and, and, and brooches and so on with the phrase, never forget, never forgive. Interesting, isn't it? Is it ever appropriate to talk about forgiveness in that type of context? Does it, does it cheapen somehow what happened to start talking? How do you even begin to do that? And even though I know that's an example a long way away, it's not personal to us, but we've all got stories, we've all got ways in which other people have wounded us, right? We've all got stuff, words that have been spoken against you, uh, and maybe not even to you. People that have said stuff about you that have really cut deep things that have been done, actions that have been taken, things that have happened and they have hurt and they have wounded you. And isn't it interesting, you just start talking about this stuff and it doesn't take long for all that emotion to bubble back up to the surface. I mean, even now you're, you're starting to feel it, aren't you? We're so good at repressing it and we get on with life and we just, we just live. But scratch the surface and it's all just there, isn't it? All that, that bitterness, all of that rage, all those feelings that you felt... When that person did that thing, said that thing, it's all right there and it just starts to feel like it was just yesterday. It just starts to feel like it's just happened. It's not easy to talk about this stuff. Very emotive subject. Very difficult. How do we even begin to talk about forgiveness? How do we even start to get our heads around what it means to be forgiving people? I want to look at a passage in the Scriptures today in Matthew 18 where Jesus tells a parable. It's a well-known parable, very familiar. Uh, but he tells this parable about forgiveness and what it means to be forgiven and what it means to be forgiving. It comes in response to a question that Peter asks. He says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven? And Jesus, you know the response. He says, not seven times, Peter, but 77 or seven times 70, 77. In other words, a whole lot of times, an infinite number of times. Keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving. And then Jesus unpacks this by telling a story. He says in verse 23 of Matthew 18, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. So, we have a king, and we have a servant. And the servant, by the way, when you think servant in this story, don't think the guy that, that washes the dishes and does all these menial jobs. Servants could be entrusted with a huge amount of responsibility in the ancient world. Probably this guy was more like a financial manager. He was in charge of the king's accounts. He was entrusted with huge sums of money. He was like an investor. And at some point, he'd been given a truckload of money and asked to spend it wisely. And then the king has this day of reckoning where he calls the servant to account. And the servant finds that he has a mountain of debt before this king. And it's worth taking a minute just to try and calculate the amount that this servant owes to the king. In my translation, it just talks about 10,000 bags of gold, which sounds pretty abstract, but the Greek word is talent, 10,000 talents. Don't, don't think talent as in like juggling or playing the guitar. This talent, talent is a measure, it's actually a weighted measure of money. And a talent was generally what a manual laborer could expect to earn in half their lifetime. So over the course of your life, you'd earn two talents. So you'd probably safely say a talent would be in excess today of a million dollars. Or let's just say a million to be conservative. So if a talent, if one talent is, a, talent is about a million dollars, this guy owes 10,000 times a million. What's that? 10 billion. 10 billion is the amount. So this is not just an, a large amount of money like your mortgage. You know, this, is not just, this is not even like a first division lotto win, win amount of money. This is an astronomical, incalculable amount of money. This is, it's not quite the American debt level, but it's getting close. You know, it's, it's, it's climbing up there, $10 billion, which makes it laughable that this servant turns around and says to the master, just be patient with me and I'll pay you back everything. I mean, how did he expect to pay this money back? How do you expect to pay back $10 billion? It's, it's like you turning up to the White House and offering to pay off the American debt just out of your own bank account or something. It's, it's just, it's bizarre. This is a sum of money he could never, ever hope to repay. And so initially, the king has him sentenced into slavery. Him and his children and his family and everything he owes, sold off into slavery. And even that is only going to recoup a tiny, a fractional amount of what the servant owes. And then the servant starts to beg. And we read this shocking twist to the story, that the king is moved with pity toward the servant. The Greek word there is the word splangnitsomai. Wonderful sounding Greek word. It's actually the word from where we get the word spleen. It literally is, is about the spleen and the bowels, that word. It, it literally means to be deeply moved in one's bowels. Because, it, not like a bowel movement, but, you know, it, it deeply moved. Because in the ancient world, they believed that the bowel, the spleen, was the deepest part of a person. So metaphorically, this is sort of this deep inner uh, movement. It's, it's not the kind of, you know, feeling pity on a guy at the side of the road, just in a surface level kind of way. This is a deep, profoundly internal moving of our hearts toward another person. This is a depth of mercy and a depth of compassion which goes to the core of our being. That's what this king felt. Maybe we could say his heart went out to him. And it's starting to get closer. He's so moved, was he, with, with, with compassion. So moved with love and so moved with mercy that he just instinctively and, and almost impulsively 
forgives the guy, cancels his debt, writes it off, $10 billion cancelled, the guy is set free, free to go. Unbelievable. And of course, Jesus' point is, this is precisely what God has done for you. And you are that servant. We are all in the shoes of that. This is what this scene is supposed to tell us. We're all standing in the shoes of that servant. We all stand at the bottom of a mountain of debt that we owe to God. And when you think about your debt before God, don't just think about the kind of like in in monetary terms or just deeds that you've done that are wrong, just this kind of transaction that's quite impersonal. Jesus tells a parable about debt because that works for the parable. But the debt that you and I have incurred before God is deeply personal. It's relational. It's intimate. It's the fact that you and I have taken our relationship with God and we've trampled on it and we've shoved it in His face and we've pushed Him away. That's the kind of debt we're taught. Not just doing bad things, not just doing naughty deeds. It's taking a relationship and trying to turn it around so that we've clutched the power for ourselves. We've remade God in our image and we've made Him subservient to us. Thank you very much. This is how you and I have treated God. God, God holds out this offer of relationship, this generous offer of, of mutual and reciprocal relationship and we've basically told him to shove it in a whole lot of ways often very passive ways just through ignoring but we've told him to to shove off and instead we've just wanted him to be a genie in a bottle that comes out and grants our wishes and we want him to and then makes himself scarce and we don't want him around that's what we've done to our relationship with God we've reversed it we've completely subverted the kind of relationship we were supposed to have we've clutched the power we've pushed God down And the irony of that is, friends, that you and I have now cut ourselves off from the giver of life. We've alienated ourselves from God. We have fractured and destroyed this relationship, this life-giving relationship. And now we find ourselves staring at a debt that we cannot possibly hope to repay. And yet so moved with compassion was God that he has taken the unbelievable step of forgiving, of cancelling our debt, and of setting us free. And I wonder if, as Jesus is telling this parable, you have to wonder whether he had some premonition that what he's describing here so beautifully is what he would go on to enact himself so brutally on the cross, because isn't that the reality to which the parable points? I mean, it's a pretty, pretty sanitized parable in a lot of ways. It's an impersonal debt. doesn't affect relationship. But a couple of years later, Jesus is going to go on to live out that parable. And it doesn't take place in a king's courtroom. It doesn't take place in a royal courtroom or a king's palace. It takes place on a hill outside Jerusalem one Friday afternoon as Jesus hangs on a cross, brutally beaten, naked and bloodied, and stapled to a crossbeam and left there hung up like a piece of meat to die until he eventually dies of asphyxiation. That's where where this parable takes us. Because that was what God did in order to purchase our forgiveness. And that kind of scene, that crucifixion scene, it's not one that we really want to linger at. It's not one that's pleasant to us. We want to move on. We want to go on to nicer images and more pleasant images of God and His forgiveness and His mercy. But I want to suggest to you that if you want to understand forgiveness and if you want to be a forgiving person, 
We have to resist the temptation to look away from the cross. We have to resist that impulse to gloss it and move on to nicer images. And we've got to be prepared to stand there and stare into the face of that man who hung on that cross. We've got to be prepared to look into those eyes and see that pain, see that agony, see the brutality of what was done because it's only there that you start to get your heart around what biblical forgiveness really is. It's only there you start to see what was done in order to forgive you and I. And even as we contemplate the suffering of the Son upon the cross, it's important not to forget the suffering of the Father at the same time. We tend to focus on how much the Son suffered, but think of the Father and what He went through as the Son hung there. You know, this week Joshua's been a bit sick. He's had this awful cough. We had some horrendous nights with him. It was up every couple of hours. And there was one time, it was early uh, Thursday morning, I think, way before I'd been normally getting up, and I was just sitting there beside his cot as he was coughing away, getting himself into these coughing fits that he just couldn't get out of. And every one of them, you can just see it's hurting him. You know, it's hurting his tonsils, it's hurting him. And I just had my hand reaching through the, the crossbars of the cot, just my hand on his back, just trying to provide some comfort. But you know, there's not much you can do for kids that young with coughing. You can't give them cough medicine yet. Um, and so it's just trying to comfort him and, and, and just trying to be there with him. And man, it's hard because you see him in pain. You see him suffering and you, and you see him kind of looking back at you like, aren't you my dad? You know, aren't, aren't you supposed to be doing, you're, you're supposed to fix things. You know, this is your role in my life is to make things better and to take away pain. And what are you doing? And it just rips your heart. I mean, that's a tiny, tiny thing in the big scheme of things. As I've talked to parents that have really suffered, who have had children that have really suffered, who have lost children. You know, I find ultimately that I struggle emotionally to really connect with that. That I can go so far, but honestly, since having had Joshua, I just, I feel like emotionally I can't even go there. I struggle to, I want to empathize, I want to sympathize, but I just find it hard to even spend too long in that space. Because just the thought of it, and just the thought of that being my boy, it's just, it's just too much. It's just too much to bear. So I find it really hard to imagine what it must have been for God as a father. Not, not an impersonal deity, but father. God as a father, looking down upon his son, and watching him be beaten and watching him be brutalized, and watching him be tortured, and watching him be executed. And it must have just taken every fiber of, of the Father's being not to just smite the entire planet at that point, you would have thought, rescue his son back to heaven. And yet in that moment, the Father just, just stays his hand, and he holds back and he doesn't intervene. And it's in that moment that you start to get a glimpse of what our forgiveness is all about. Because great as the suffering of the Son was, great as the suffering of the Father was, watching the Son be inflicted with all of this, greater still was God's splangnitzumai. Greater still was the compassion that He had for you and I. 
that moved him to endure what he had to endure. So great was the Father's love for us that he was willing to watch his son go through that, and the son was willing to endure it for the sake of our forgiveness, for the sake of setting us free. This is the heart of it, friends. If you want forgiveness to become a possibility in your life, if you want this to become a gift that you are enabled to offer other people, you've got to spend some time at the foot of the cross, staring into the eyes of the crucified man and seeing there what burden God has lifted from your shoulders and just how much He has forgiven you and just what lengths He's gone to to make it happen. Everything else flows on from there. Everything else is really an unpacking of that, but that is the heart of it, and that is where it starts. This is what Jesus wants us to understand about forgiveness, is just how much it costs the Son and the Father to purchase your redemption and your freedom. And so then the servant takes off. He goes out from the king's presence, and verse 26 picks up the story. Verse 28, But when that servant went out, he found one of his his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until until he could pay the debt. So here's a second servant comes on the scene now who owes this guy, what, a hundred silver coins. I mean, that's still a reasonable amount of money, probably a few thousand in today's terms. It's not insignificant. But compared to what he has owed the king, it's about one six hundredth of the debt that he owes the king. It's a fraction of what he has just been forgiven for. And yet rather than showing that same forgiveness, he turns around, he has the man thrown into prison until he can repay the debt. It's interesting when you look closely in that text. I don't think this guy, this, this servant, was particularly interested in justice. We kind of assume that what he wanted was to get his money back. You know, you owe me 600 silver coins, I want to get my money back. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because what he does is throw the guy into prison. How's he going to pay the money back when he's in prison? How's he going to recoup the cash? You don't tend to pay off a lot of loans while you're in prison. I think what this guy is really after is not so much justice, I think he wants vengeance. I think he basically wants payback, right? He wants to inflict harm. And isn't that basically what we want? To those people that have wronged us, to those people that have spoken against us and hurt us deeply, those scars that we're carrying, we basically want vengeance. We want to get even. We want to pay them back. We want to make them squirm. You might not admit it, but let's just be honest in our own minds, if nothing else. Isn't that basically what we want? And so we'll scheme and we'll lie in bed at night figuring out how we can fire a few bullets their way. Maybe we can try and socially ostracize them by forming some friendship coalitions that they get left out of. Maybe we can muscle our way past them at work a bit in some project or other and push past them and get credit instead of them. There's got to be a way of inflicting some. Maybe we could just send the harsh email, the snarky email. Maybe we could threaten a bit of legal action even if we don't intend to do anything about it just to watch them squirm just to make threats, just to use words as weapons. We'll do whatever we can. And if those options aren't available to us, then we'll take vengeance in our own minds. And we will fantasize about the things that we'd like to do to them 
if we met them one night in a dark alley. Don't we? Let's just be honest. I mean, we are extremely imaginative people when it comes to vengeance. The ways in which we'd like to see their demise come about. The things that we wish we could say if we had the courage and the strength. And if we had that argument over again, the things that I would be saying and my counter-arguments, and I'd be making sure I won this time. The ways that we'd love to inflict harm on them until they come groveling back, so full of remorse, so contrite, and then we might, we might just show them mercy if we are particularly benevolent. This tends to be our mode of operation. We'll take vengeance in action, and if we can't do that, we'll take vengeance in our own heart. There's a guy in the Old Testament, really obscure character, his name's Lamech. Crops up just once in Genesis 4. All we know about him is that he's a really vengeful guy. It's about everything we know. He just sort of fades out of the story after that. But he lives by the principle that if someone wrongs him, if someone wounds him or grieves him, he will repay them back disproportionately to what they've done to him. So if someone injures him, he will take their life. If someone wounds him, he will take their life. And he says at one point, some of the only words that we have from him in Genesis 4, he says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. In other words, I'm going to avenge someone out of all proportion to what they do to me. In view of that, can you see what Jesus is doing when he says to Peter, forgive your brother 77 times? He's not just saying forgive people a lot of times. He's saying the way of Lamech is over. He's saying the age of Lamech, marked as it was by violence, by retribution, by vengeance, by payback, by punishing others, by eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it's over. That age is fading away and a new age is coming about. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The new creation is bursting upon the scene and one of its primary hallmarks is the way of forgiveness. The way of vengeance, friends, is not the way of the cross. It's not the way of the Son. It's not the way of the Father. The way of the cross is the way of forgiveness It's what it means to be kingdom people. This is exactly where Jesus' parable goes. This is the final scene. Back in Matthew 18 and verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. That's disturbing stuff. That's a really hard passage. That's very uncomfortable, isn't it? Because basically what happens is the king turns around and withdraws his offer of forgiveness. He withdraws all the mercy. He withdraws all the grace. And he inflicts an even harsher punishment than the one he'd given to the second servant. Not only throwing him into prison, but having him tortured as well. Not because he didn't accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, but because he didn't forgive his brother. Now, you've got to remember this is a parable. 
And parables are not meant to be taken literally. So I'm not telling you that if you don't forgive someone, God's literally going to torture you. I don't think that's what's going on here. But what Jesus is making unmistakably clear here is that your forgiveness from God and your forgiveness of others are inseparably linked. They are inseparably connected. In fact, they're not really even two different things. It's basically the same. You receive forgiveness and you give forgiveness. This is who we are supposed to be in Christ. It's kind of like a champagne tower. You know, you pour the champagne into the top cup, it flows over and it naturally fills the other cups. This is what it is to be forgiven. We are not intended just to be forgiven people, but also to be forgiving people. See, the more that we take God's forgiveness of us for granted, the more that we trivialize that, look the other way and just become casual about that, the harder it's going to be for you to forgive someone else the less natural, the less comfortable. And it's never easy, but it's going to be really hard if you've treated God's own forgiveness of you loosely. But the more that you and I spend time standing at the foot of the cross and just gazing at the wonder of what God has done for us there, the more that it is going to become a natural expression of who we are to turn around and extend that precious gift of forgiveness to another person. Of course they don't deserve it. Of course they haven't earned it. Of course they deserve retribution. But so did you. 600 times, 10 billion times more. And look at how God's treated you. You're never going to be asked to forgive anyone for anything like what God has already forgiven you from. He's done the hard part. He has taken the great step. While, we, while you were his enemy, He's forgiven you. And now he says, I pour my forgiveness into your life in order that it might run over into the lives of others with whom you have a dispute, with whom you have been wounded and offended. We're not only to be forgiven people, but out of that to be forgiving people. One of our elders, Murray Dixon, told me a story a couple of weeks ago about his dad his dad's mum died when, she, when he was about uh, two or three years old. And his dad remarried. And the stepmum that Murray's dad had, he said, was like the stepmum of scary children's storybooks. She was vindictive. She was cruel. These are his words, not mine. She was nasty. She had this awful temper. And she would punish the kids. She would beat them for just the slightest little mistake, the slightest little infraction. And her husband hated this, hated seeing the kids punished and beaten like that, but he felt powerless to do anything about it. After a few years, the stepmom sent Murray's dad and his sisters into an orphanage. She just wanted nothing more to do with them, just sent them away. And they spent years there. While they were in, in that orphanage, their father died, and the stepmom didn't even tell them. Didn't even tell them the father had passed away. They just wondered why he stopped visiting. She had several other kids as well. And she'd manage over the years to brainwash them so that they hated the other siblings with just as much venom, just as much hatred as she did. And the kids got to the age, as teenagers, the orphanage wouldn't take them anymore, so they sent the kids back home. Back home to no father, back home to a stepmom who couldn't stand them, back home to siblings who hated them just as much as she hated them. And eventually Murray's dad moved on in his life and married and he became a minister lost contact with his stepmom, and then one day got word that she'd died. And he was confronted with this bizarre request that she'd asked that he would take her funeral. He didn't even realize that she knew he was a minister or anything like that, but somehow she'd gotten word of this before she'd died and made the request that he took her funeral. 
So here's Murray's dad as a young man in his 20s, still grieving over the loss of his father, harboring a huge amount of bitterness and resentment towards his stepmom, and now being asked to take her funeral. And he went through what he described with God as a catharsis of the soul. And he eventually got to the point where he agreed to take the funeral. And at that funeral service, he preached a message on forgiveness. He talked about how he and his sisters had gone through this process of being able to forgive their stepmom for the ways in which she had treated them over the years because of their appreciation for the way God had forgiven them. And how in forgiving their stepmom, they'd been set free from all of the bitterness and all of the anger and all the resentment that they'd carried with them year after year after year. It's a powerful story of forgiveness. And you might think, you know, I just can't do that. I'm not that super spiritual. I don't have it in me. I can't forgive this person. And you're right, you can't. But the spirit of forgiveness who has breathed God's forgiveness into your life can well up within you and give you strength that you don't have to extend forgiveness to that person who's wronged you. I know it's not easy. I know it's really, no matter how much you appreciate what God's done for you, it's never easy. This is really, really difficult stuff. But this is kingdom stuff. And this is precisely where the gospel looks different to the rest of the world that we are forgiven people, and so we are forgiving people. And some of you this morning, even here, you might just be tied up with that bitterness and that rage. And as you think about that person, you just, your stomach just churns and you have all of that resentment towards them, all of that anger, it's still there. You're just carrying it around with you and it's eating you up. Friends, the only way that you're going to be able to let that go is through forgiveness. It's not just for them, it's for you. It's the only way that you're going to find healing. It's the only way that you're going to be set free from your brokenness. It's the only way you're going to be set free from that wound and that scar that you are carrying around is through extending to them that precious, precious gift of forgiveness. That's what's going to set you free. Lewis Smead says that forgiveness is setting a person free and then finding out that person was you. That's what it is and that's what it means. When we become forgiving people, we loosen the chains or God loosens the chains that are already around our heart. And it starts by spending that time looking into the eyes of your crucified Savior and just rediscovering all that he's been through to set you free, the mountain of debt that he absorbed in order to claim your forgiveness. And then out of that, taking the first step, just the first step, on that long road to forgiveness. And it is a journey. It is not instantaneous. It is not a light switch that you flick. We'll talk about this more next week and the practicalities around forgiveness. But it is a long road, friends, sometimes a lifelong journey. But you can take the first step today. You can take the first step. You can take it here. You can take it with Christ. And you can take it at the foot of the cross, the first step on that journey of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your forgiveness for us. And we pray that just as you've forgiven us, 
you might set us free to forgive those who sin against us. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.